Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Ron Diebert. He's a professor of political science and director of the Citizen Lab at the Monk School at U of T. And in that role, he's overseen and been a contributing author to more than 120 reports on cyber espionage, commercial spyware, internet censorship, and human rights. He's received too many awards to count, and Ron was the 2020 CBC Massey lecturer with his book Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. As Cory Doctorow has put it, tech is at a crossroads between oppression and liberation, and Ron Diebert is our leading expert on the forces steering it in either direction. Now, we've had a bit of a hiatus for the Uncommons podcast since the parliamentary session came to a close in June, and I've been particularly busy lately as I'm actively exploring the idea of running for the Ontario Liberal Party leadership. Whatever I decide, I do intend to keep the podcast going, as I found it to be an invaluable tool both to do my best to keep you informed, I hope has worked, but also to improve my own advocacy efforts along the way. Ron Diebert is no exception. As he rightly articulates, Canada can and should look to improve its own transparency with respect to cyber surveillance activities and also show greater leadership in procurement and export controls to ensure that our use of tech is consistent with respect for human rights. Ron, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To begin, for those who don't know what Citizen Lab is, what is it you do at the Monk School in UT, and, and how did it come about? Well, the Citizen Lab is a very unusual entity for any academic uh, outfit anywhere in the world. We're really doing something quite unique. Uh, I founded the Citizen Lab 20 years ago, back in 2001. And I'm a political scientist. My area of expertise is international security and information technology. And back when I was first hired at the University of Toronto, I had this idea of developing a laboratory where I'd bring together people with technical skills that I lacked who would uh, work with me on investigating interesting issues uh, around uh, information controls, broadly speaking. So Back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was a lot of discussion around would the internet be a challenge for authoritarian regimes? Would governments have difficulties uh, regulating it? And so I realized that there were ways that we could enter into this conversation and produce interesting evidence-based research using mostly computer science and engineering science techniques um, that would, as I have called it lift a lid on the internet. And this has matured and evolved over time. We've broadened out now what we work on to a number of different topics. Uh, We uh, draw from skills and methods from people outside of either my discipline or the computer science engineering science. We have, for example, numerous lawyers on our team now because a lot of the work has legal implications. We have people who are area experts. Um, A lot of the work that we do that gets attention is around uh, the investigations we've done on cyber espionage targeting civil society. Um, But it's not the only area we work on. I know we're going to talk a lot about that today, Pegasus and so forth, but we've done extensive work, just to give one example, uh, looking very closely, reverse engineering, forensically analyzing popular social media applications in China. The reason is that uh, those uh, companies have to comply with Chinese cybersecurity regulations, and usually they build into their application some hidden form of censorship or surveillance, and we have routinely uh, uncovered this and and published about it. We also have a team that works mostly on national security, 
issues in Canada. Uh, so they're focused on accountability around our security agencies, uh, our police agencies. We've done work on the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in customs and border patrol and immigration policy. So we have a pretty robust team that actually just focuses on on Canada around these topics. And, and I kind of straddle all of them to the best that I can. Well, in many respects, the the common theme across those different areas of concern and investigation is this necessary transparency. In order to bring any ethical framework to bear, we need to know exactly what is happening on these platforms in with respect to police activities or, or surveillance activities. That's right. And people in my position can't do the work that we need to do if you're not doing that investigatory work to begin with, it seems. And you mentioned Pegasus, so we might as well start there, although I'm interested in some of the other issues you talked about. But starting with Pegasus, I've seen Pegasus come up in a number of Citizen Lab investigations now and, and other investigations, frankly, of international concern. What is Pegasus, though, for those who don't know? Pegasus is a, a spyware. Um, it's, it's a commercial spyware, uh, part of what we call the mercenary spyware industry. It is probably the world's most sophisticated spyware. The reason I say part of an industry is, although Pegasus gets a lot of attention, it's only one product sold by one company in a very large but shadowy marketplace. So in a nutshell, there are companies, and in this case, it's NSO Group, which is based in Israel that manufactures and sells Pegasus. Uh, companies like them sell to government clients methods and tools to essentially hack into devices of suspects. And so there is on the surface of it a uh, legitimate uh, rationale uh, to, you know, police, police agencies, law enforcement need to be able to investigate serious matters of crime. Intelligence agencies need to do the work that they do. There is now uh, a lot of data that's contained in anyone's device um, that can allow you to get a really rich detail of every person's movements, activities, contacts, etc. And, and so the combination of those two, law enforcement intelligence agencies with this big appetite, and then these companies that develop sophisticated tools to get inside the devices, has really led to this great leap forward in capabilities and a very lucrative industry. The big problem that we're identifying in our research is that there are many, many governments uh, that lack transparency, public accountability, very poor judicial or other types of oversight over their security agencies. Many of them have serious human rights problems. In fact, globally speaking, the human rights situation is deteriorating steeply. And so not surprisingly, we are seeing government clients of this technology abusing it. And the, the big takeaway of our many years doing this type of reporting is consistently we've seen this very powerful surveillance tool being used to target political opposition, civil society, lawyers, friends and family members. In other words, people that by any international human rights standard are clearly not criminals or terrorists, except in the eyes of someone like, say, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who is a you know serial abuser of, of Pegasus technology. So in a nutshell, it's a very powerful surveillance tool used to hack into devices for government clients. And there are any number of investigations now where you've documented the use of Pegasus spyware most recently against pro-democracy campaigners in Thailand, but just you've today, referenced yeah. 
Yeah, you've re- exactly. You referenced Saudi use of it to, again, target, I think, Al Jazeera journalists and to target human rights advocates. Every Catalan president since 2010 was hacked. Yes. I, in, we're talking about journalists, human rights advocates or protesters, but we're also talking about very senior elected officials yeah. that are being hacked at the same time. That's correct. So it's, you know, our approach to this, I should have mentioned at the outset, the Citizen Lab's mission is to do research uh, from a human rights perspective, broadly speaking. So, of, of course, everyone hears about cyber espionage targeting governments or private sector. Although that's important, most of what we do is focused on civil society. So we're interested in espionage against journalists or, you know, lawyers, activists and others However, um, there's no doubt about it that this industry is, has also become a real national security risk for a lot of governments. And that's because unlike the way technologies like Pegasus are marketed, the open secret in this industry is that they're used for state-on-state espionage. So we have seen also firsthand in our investigations, governments spying on other governments. Probably the most significant that's come across my desk, um, and which was reported on by Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker recently, we discovered that there was an infected device, a Pegasus-infected device, in 10 Downing Street. Uh, We really just stumbled upon this as part of another investigation. We debated about what to do with, with this information because we have to be at arm's length from all governments. So we did a formal notification to the UK authorities and they confirmed that a a device was hacked in 10 Downing Street. Interestingly, this was a a overnight Sunday. So you might imagine there are very few people in 10 Downing Street with a device. Uh, So it's probably uh, someone quite significant uh, that's in the news quite often, especially recently, whose device was hacked. And there have been others like that. The United States government has issued alerts because State Department officials have had their phones hacked. So it's both a human rights and a national security issue. And on a more technical basis, this isn't a matter of someone clicking a link through a a phishing email. This is a piece of software that is exploiting uh, vulnerability in your phone to begin with. It could be. So there are many different ways to accomplish the same ends. The same ends being you want to spy on somebody. We have also reported on very bespoke, almost do-it-yourself espionage or hack-for-hire services. One in particular comes to mind that was based in Delhi, India, that was responsible for a worldwide espionage campaign that we uncovered that was basically tricking people into entering their email credentials into a fake looking portal. So if you can do that, you can get access to everyone's email. That can get you a long way. What Pegasus does though is on a completely different level. It's like nuclear surveillance technology, if you will. So um, just zeroing in on this one company, NSO Group, uh, they uh, spend millions of dollars and they hire some of the most capable veterans of their signals intelligence agency to do nothing but spend all day looking for that one particular software flaw that the vendor itself is unaware of that they can exploit. And it it has now, you know, several of our reports, we've come across uh, and discovered uh, these exploits. And it's our responsibility as researchers to notify the vendors. 
Apple has twice issued emergency security patches based on our research. Now, when you say someone doesn't have to click on a link and so on, I think you're referring to the evolution of how Pegasus has worked. So in the past, as recently as like three years ago, in order to infect or hack a device, you'd have to trick somebody into clicking on a link that would activate the exploit. Exactly. And then um, what happened was they uh, evolved their product to the point where they have zero click versions, meaning an operator using Pegasus can simply fire the exploit at a device if it's vulnerable to that particular exploitation and just take it over. There's no visible evidence of tampering. It's silent. Uh, so for the user, there's no warning. However, uh, for us, on the other hand, we have developed really refined forensic techniques. So now we've gotten to the point where we can see right down to the second when the hacking took place. And it's a bit of a cat and mouse game between NSO Group and the Citizen Lab, maybe Amnesty International, and that's about it. And it's not just the NSO Group, as you say, there's this... That's right much larger i mean there's so much money in this business of mercenaries for hire in yeah. the espionage space that it's nso group there's another star alliance in telexa that I, right. I saw in, in, in one of your reports and and the challenge in some ways you, you identify at the at the outset you know when you were looking at even beginning citizen lab the potential of the internet to be a more democratizing force but this kind of espionage, particularly as directed against pro-democracy campaigners, against human rights activists, it proves the opposite in some ways, unfortunately, that it, it actually empowers authoritarian regimes to maintain uh, a, a very strong grip on power. It could. I mean, it's it's a bit of a, a constant dynamic. It's, it's very fluid. So we've gone through over the last, you know, the, the history of the internet, if you will, or the popular internet, we've seen moments in time where, like the Arab Spring comes to mind, where it seems like, oh, wow, like this technology is enabling people to circumvent governments and hold them accountable. And even today, if you look at the work that we do, or the work that a group like Bellingcat does, yeah. taking advantage of data on the internet, you can do a lot to act as a watchdog. And this is impossible without these technologies. However, I think there was an initial euphoria and uh, a mythologizing around the internet in the early days that's now been proven wrong. And actually, you know, getting back to when I started the Citizen Lab, a very foundational experience for me, when I was a graduate student, I was seconded to Foreign Affairs Canada to do work on exploring whether commercial satellite reconnaissance could be used for arms control. And two things really resonated with me at that time. One was I was introduced to this shadowy kind of world that I really didn't you know, fully appreciate existed outside of maybe some spy movies that I saw. In other words, governments have these extraordinary capabilities to gather information from telecommunications networks. And very few people, very few citizens knew this was happening. I mean, this was at a time still when our own communications and security establishment, they didn't even acknowledge they existed. Um, and, and here I was seeing, you know, parts of this, even though I didn't have uh, security clearance after a while, people just kind of assume you're part of a team and you start seeing, you know, these, this, this capability. And I, I was just awed and it, it made me think, 
I, I kind of wonder whether governments are going to have a tough time navigating this internet world because actually it opens up a lot of opportunities for surveillance and control of information. So I was thinking about that when I started the Citizen Lab. But the other thing that resonated with me was I was doing work on arms control and the Canadian government at that time was very much interested in that topic. And I had um, a very fortunate experience to see some of the different methods and techniques that were being used to watch governments in order to prevent them from cheating. Um, so for example, at that time, there was a lot of um, enthusiasm about a possible nuclear test ban. So if we ever got agreement on a nuclear test ban, you'd need to have all sorts of sensors around the planet monitoring what's going on. And that model of a kind of distributed web of watchers holding governments accountable really provided the inspiration for the Citizen Lab. So I owe Foreign Affairs Canada for uh, some of that uh, early inspiration. Well, and I'm not so the, sure they like me so much anymore. But. <laughs> well, the parallel to arms control is a, re is a real one because yeah. you've said elsewhere, mercenary spy firms like the NSO group claim they're selling a carefully controlled lawful interception tool. But in reality, what they're providing is despotism as a service. That's right. And if you don't have very strict controls around the transfer of sale use of technology like this, it is akin to arming a military in some ways. Well, it is. It, first of all, quite literally, this technology is sold to security agencies, many of which are military agencies. Exactly. And the nature of the industry itself is very much of a piece with military trade. So in other words, Pegasus is sold in the same manner that weapon systems are sold. And then for the longest time, people would say, we don't like this term cyber weapon because you know, software can't kill people. And I, I would always respond to that by saying, well, hold on a minute. I, I could give you so many examples of my research where someone's phone was hacked and then they were murdered. And, and so even though the software didn't kill them, the software enabled those who do the killing to do it more effectively. By the way, we, I'm sure you are aware that there is a disturbing trend worldwide of the spread of, of transnational repression. Authoritarian regimes aren't just sitting back guarding their borders. They're going, uh, you know, in some cases, many cases, to Canada, to other countries like that, to identify people that are in political opposition back home. This tool has vastly accelerated that process. I think it's one of the main reasons why we're seeing the spread of transnational repression. And in the interest of basic sense of human rights, in the interest of defending democracies against the activities that, that you just referenced, and in the interest of basic accountability for law enforcement agencies here at home, and we can get to that, but also uh, abroad, what can we do? do about this. You've got uh, an incredibly powerful surveillance tool that is being used. And frankly, the Israeli government is authorizing, I would say, improper use of this. But you've got yeah. some countries that are turning, uh, there's a willful blindness to this from, from certain right. countries, uh, and maybe the softest way I can put it, but other countries are using this in a, in a, a very intentional and malicious way to stamp out dissent. What can a country like Canada do? You know, there's some obvious steps, maybe like like I think Biden has with the NSO group to yeah. 
to treat it more as arms control and say if it's being used in an improper way, then we're going to shut this group out. What should the federal government of Canada be looking at? Well, first of all, I think to answer that question and to appreciate the challenges, you have to step back a bit and get at something you hinted at when you said willful blindness. So first of all, it's important to acknowledge that all governments are involved in what we're describing here, including our own. So we have a very capable uh, signals intelligence agency that's been part of the so-called Five Eyes Alliance for many, many decades, very well resourced as an agency within the federal government that has as part of its mandate to hack abroad. So they, they are doing exactly what we've been describing, probably not using Pegasus as far as I know, but something like it. This is why it's very difficult to get movement to mitigate some of the harms we're talking about, because generally speaking, those agencies prefer not to have much scrutiny over what they're doing, all things being equal. Now, if you do comparative analysis, you look government to government, some have oversight, some stronger, some lesser. For the longest time, I was very critical of our oversight regime. I thought it was a bit flimsy. I think it's getting better. But that said, there's still a, a strong interest in keeping things like what they do in the shadow. We don't want too many people poking around in this stuff, maybe for good reason. So it, it's very difficult to get movement and traction on this file. In terms of if we could convince them and, and make the argument, what I've, I think I've been zeroing in on is something that we've seen happen in the United States, where the Biden administration has taken some pretty strong proactive steps that I think we should be doing as well. Um, so the playbook's been written. First of all, we need to have some kind of procurement rules. So I think our agencies, as we know, we we're going to talk about the RCMP. It came to light that they use spyware. Okay, use spyware. Maybe that's legitimate or not. I don't know. But just let's make sure you're not purchasing it from some of the worst offenders out there that do no due diligence and are contributing to massive human rights abuses. I think that's the bare minimum. It sounds um, like it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that what is essentially the Biden administration has done that now. They've signaled with their Commerce Department designation. These firms are on our designated entity list. We can't do business with them. Right. Um, what, that won't solve the problem, but it will help drain the swamp a bit, if you will. I really wish that we would do that. I haven't seen any indication that we will. Um, secondly, I, I think that we need to think about export controls. So uh, Pegasus is sold by an Israeli company. However, the Citizen Lab has done research that has identified several Canadian companies that are involved in dis different aspects of what we're describing here. The worst being NetSweeper, um, which is uh, based in Waterloo that sells internet censorship technology to some of the world's worst human rights offending countries. So here we are, uh, Canada, uh, with our values and our technology is being used to censor LGBTQ websites and women's health information. This shouldn't happen. Why is it happening? Because there's no control over the export of this technology. And even worse, uh, the Canadian government still to this day promotes NetSweeper at its trade shows. Every once in a while, I'll see this come across my social media feed Wow. I'm like, this is madness. I can't believe after all the attention we've raised, still they are taking them to trade shows and profiling them. There are companies that sell more surveillance type technologies based in Canada um, that we've identified being used abroad. So I, I think we need to have some standards on 
export licensing. I think that takes a bit of time to make the case that, you know, this is something analogous to ballistic missile components. You just can't have a completely wide open playing field. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation where a Canadian company will be selling, you know, spyware to a horrible dictatorship and it's going to be used to murder someone back here in Canada. If nothing else, that, that should be the argument. I was surprised actually that the report that we did on Omar Abdulaziz, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, this is back in 2018. He was a very close confidant of the murdered Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. We determined his phone was hacked by Saudi operatives. Uh, and our report was released the day before Khashoggi was executed. To me, that should have been a wake-up call. Okay, we've got a big problem. You know, Saudi Arabia is using this spyware to attack a somebody we're supposed to be harboring and supporting in this country. And it led to a murder, uh, a very high profile murder. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. Perhaps we didn't communicate out the urgency uh, of it enough or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think we need to be doing a lot more in this country. And, and frankly, uh, we're chairing something called the Freedom Online Coalition this year. The Canadian government is. I just, I'd be shocked and dismayed if this wasn't high on the agenda. But if you ask me, uh, would I be surprised if it wasn't? I would say, no, I've been around long enough not to be too disappointed. But also, what would a better opportunity be to take a leadership role than, than an opportunity like that? And, 100%. And when the Washington Post journalist was, was murdered, I had also read in the aftermath that the Saudi government had also hacked friends and family to follow yes. the trajectory of events. Yeah, so we verified that. that was, we, we verified his fiance and his, and his wife, uh, both had their phones hacked. So sinister, the sinister through and through. And, uh, and then, and then you see sort of the, the fist bump over the last week. And you wonder if there is going to be accountability that's brought to bear in a more serious way. And, and I, I guess that accountability does need to start at home and yes. if we're to if we're to use our voice at that forum, and if we're going to use our voice on the world stage for it to have meaning, we've got to live by those same values here. And so, NetSweeper is a good example. But Canadian companies being subject to core values before they're exported to certain regimes makes a certain degree of sense. Some of those core values, one would think, would be basic due process, judicial authorization adherence to democratic values potentially so moving to the canadian context i had read and, and you mentioned the rcmp have recently acknowledged the use of spyware effectively they've indicated that it, it's restricted to 10 investigations to date in very serious matters and that the use of the spyware has been subject to judicial authorization so as a member of parliament who is quite concerned about civil liberties, I would say some of what the RCMP has said gives me comfort, but I would have even greater comfort if I had a better sense of what they were doing, what the, that there was some proportionality to what they were doing. And, and yet, you know, I'm sure the law enforcement agencies would say, we can't be so transparent because of the the need for some confidentiality for success in the investigation and so how how does someone in my shoes square the desire for transparency to impose a more ethical framework on judicial authorization to make sure that things are consistent with 
how we would want them to be. And especially if we're going to be serious on the world stage and, and, and taking a stance, what do you think is missing when it comes to the RCMP's use of spyware to date from a, a due process perspective? Well, first of all, I think you merely asking that question as an MP is very important. That's a, a start. And so hopefully your colleagues on, on all parties would, would feel the same way. The questions you're asking, I think, are very important ones. You know, the way I think about it is I like the assurance the RCMP gave us, but also I'm aware that the RCMP and law enforcement have a pretty uh, spotty track record when it comes to openly acknowledging exactly what they're doing when it comes to these type of technologies. So, um, for example, cell site simulators or MC catchers, uh, we suspected for many years were being used by local law enforcement and the RCMP in this country, and they swore up and down they had no idea what we're talking about. Turns out uh, that they were actually using them to the point of actually withholding uh, data from litigation cases in order to preserve their methods, which is actually very deceitful and, and I think um, shows a outright lack of transparency and accountability. Um, and they were actually describing it in different language. So when people were doing access to information requests, it would not turn up because they were, uh, you know, using a different, their own internal way to describe it. Um, so I think all of this means when it comes to this sudden acknowledgement by the RCMP, um, we have to be, you know, trust but verify to use that that phrase. I think that, you know, there are some people in my community in the kind of human rights space that think that there's an inherent problem with this type of technology for a couple of reasons. One is in order for it to function, they are taking advantage of exploits, as we talked about, that affect consumer applications. So instead of disclosing these vulnerabilities to the vendors so that they can be fixed, uh, they're harboring them to use as investigatory assets. And the same goes for intelligence agencies. So I, I think we need to zero in on the vulnerabilities equities process, something that is actually quite mature in the United States, but I don't get the sense it is here in Canada. In other words, when does the Canadian government hold on to that information for the reasons we talk about? And when do they disclose it to the vendors to fix? And who's making that decision? Who's part of it? I have no idea right now in this country about that. That, that I think should change. Um, and maybe an MP like you could ask that question. You know, what is, what, what's the process here? Who's, who's involved? The reason is because, you know, those withholding that information affects everyone's security, not just the criminals. It's analogous to proposals to weaken encryption, frankly. Um, so we need to be very careful about this because it's a public safety issue, truly. Um, so we better balance the equities. The other thing is the technology is much different than a wiretap. So, you know, if you have a old days wiretap, you know, someone would put a, a wiretap on a phone line and you hope to pick up some conversation, you watch The Wire or some other series like that, you know, maybe somebody might say something over the telephone call and you'd be able to gather that information. Or maybe you put a bug in their apartment. But with this type of technology, you have complete visibility into every aspect of a person's daily life. It's, it's like a, a wiretap on steroids. So I think there's a greater burden of uh, oversight required for that great leap forward in technology that's only happened within the last 15 years. 
You know, this is not Jag or Hoover wiretapping we're talking about. It's like a spy in your brain, really. So we have to be very, very careful about making sure we have corresponding safeguards. That's how I'd approach this topic. In addition to what we described earlier, like, you know, while we're at it, it would be nice to know who you're buying this from. That doesn't tip off criminals. Like, you know, if you need to know uh, which vendor it is you're purchasing from, I think that's something that could be open to more transparency to make sure that we're not sending uh, taxpayer money to some firms that are helping the Saudis or the Rwandans kill people. Like that's exactly. Just, Basic, yeah. You make a, a very good point about sort of the history of police agencies in this country actively avoiding accountability, including in relation to the use of technology. But your Stingray example is a good one. But the more recently, I saw the Privacy Commissioner conclude that the RCMP violated the Privacy Act and the use of Clearview AI's Clearview. Uh, facial recognition technology. And, and again, a, a complete and total absence of transparency and accountability until somebody organizations whether a privacy commissioner or independent investigation start to uncover this information and, and then they come forward and, and say i'm sorry <laughs> you know it, it's and we won't right. use this technology in this way and so being skeptical at the outset is i think the right approach and you kind of got at my question when it comes to is it the tool or the process that we want to address uh, and in some ways the the nature of the tool demands a much more stringent process because of the, the importance of proportionality in any investigation technique. And if, as you say, the, the tool itself lends itself to just scooping up so much information, uh, then that much more due process is required. But are some tools, facial recognition being one, but the surveillance tool that governments are procuring, every EU government, I guess, procures from the NSO group pretty near, the spyware that the RCMP employs, is the tool so powerful that we can't bring it to heel in some ways with respect to due process? You know, a legal framework to govern hacking oversight, the you know judicial due process as far as it goes, is all of that sufficient to address the nature of the tool or are certain restrictions like prohibitions on the use of some tools necessary instead? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that there are colleagues that and friends of mine in, in my community, one especially being UN Special Rapporteur, former UN Special Rapporteur David Kay, and also for that matter, Agnes Camillard, who's now uh, heading Amnesty International. She was also UN Special Rapporteur into Extraordinary Disappearances, I think it's called. They both called for a complete moratorium, a ban on this technology. I just thought that, that was unrealistic. And one has to be careful throwing out rhetorical suggestions like that. But I've, there's no way that would happen. You know, I, your question's really interesting and challenging. Uh, and I, I have a section in my book, Reset, where I talk about how police agencies in general are enjoying this great leap forward in, in technology. Like, it's astronomical, uh, you know, whether it's Clearview AI, Stingray type capabilities, on and on and on and on. There's just suddenly this explosion of data and firms that are providing assistance in analytics and all sorts of things like that. We really need to double down on oversight and, and restraint mechanisms. And I, I don't pretend to have a secret for it other than to say we need more things like the National Security Intelligence Review Agency, the parliamentary committees that provide oversight. You know, it's not rocket science. It's just more and, and more effective and, and better resourced oversight agencies. 
our privacy commissioners, for example, they do great work, but my sense is they're under, they lack capacity and they can't really do anything. They can make these recommendations, but they don't have the power to impose fines. So it'll be a long, it's, it's a long, tough struggle, but we got to do something right, to uh, protect democracy and human rights. So I, I wouldn't give up, but it, it's, it, it scares me, frankly, where we're at right now. Well, empowering the agencies of accountability is unquestionably part of the answer. And it's interesting how you were so far ahead of the curve on taking a computer science approach, because a number of years ago, I was in Brussels and I met with the EU data protection supervisor. I met with Elizabeth Denham, who was then the information commissioner in the UK. And they were both at that time, just a few years ago, they were scaling up their computer science capacity because they were receiving new responsibilities around algorithmic explainability, and they needed the capacity to deliver on that new responsibility. But you, this is 20 years ago, you were thinking through these problems from how do we bring more computer science expertise to bear as a matter of accountability. And I think that is only going to grow that need for computer science expertise and more technical expertise, legal expertise, sure, but but the technical expertise in these accountability agencies the privacy commissioner is going to be empowered to a much greater degree in the hopefully coming months. We do have a bill that is now before parliament. I'd introduced the bill a number of years ago to give the privacy commissioner order making powers, more significant mm-hmm. finding powers and greater auditing powers. And it looks like mm-hmm. we're going to, that's, that's one piece now of a privacy bill that's going to be before us, I, I hope in the fall at our industry committee. So there's some reasons for optimism on that Good. front too. We are also going to see a new oversight agency for the CDSA, which is good news That's as well. Right. So Very I think good. we are in fits and starts moving towards empowering greater oversight. One challenge though, and this is again, a personal experience being involved in this international grand committee on data and privacy. And uh, it started out of the Cambridge Analytica scandal where we were going down this rabbit hole on the Canadian side and we were working with our sister Parliament in the UK, who are obviously much more affected by the scandal, but there was a Canadian player, uh, AIQ in this, that meant we were doing our investigation and supporting theirs. Anyway, out of that, we had this International Grand Committee. And one thing that has been a real challenge is when you get into questions of censorship around content, there are obviously laws that we've long had on the books with respect to hate speech and criminal harassment. And those should be enforced, I think, online as far as it goes, uh, and it becomes an enforcement challenge more than anything. But then other countries, and Singapore being an example, they were on the International Grand Committee, and then they, I would say, put a law in place that is a bit more concerning from a free speech perspective. And so when you look at social media companies in China, for example, how do we square this desire to defend human rights and, and defend basic conceptions of freedom of expression? while also respecting sovereignty and and different value sets in, in different parts of the world. And obviously they're extreme, exa- like the, the murder of a Washington journalist is beyond the pale. And that's not really part of that this conversation. This is more if we're addressing criminal harassment and they want to address it once upon a time in this country, blasphemy was taken more seriously, you know, like, so are, are there more difficult conversations that you guys look to to say, well, there's this action, which is beyond the pale, but these actions are more challenging. If we're going to impose our own values on the internet in a Canadian perspective, other countries are going to impose their values as well, and, but in a different, and we, we might see problematic way, but in a different way. 
Yeah, that, that's a good way of explaining all of that. It's it's tough, right? We live in a world divided into sovereign states, many different cultures, many different you know flavors of regimes that have different priorities. And the internet, meanwhile, is a global network. So there's that contradiction right at the outset that makes it very difficult to create a uniform policy across the entire internet. I think those problems are, first of all, very serious. And thinking in particular about things like uh, online harassment, and there is a bill that's you know making its way through that I and others have commented on about precisely that. I I think it's important to address that issue, but we need to be careful not to do it in a way that you know creates more problems than than solutions and or has some kind of overreach that it comes from maybe good intention. So we, and that, and that certainly can, then creates a a baseline that allows other government actors elsewhere around the world to say, well, we're just doing the same thing that you're doing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that all of that's tricky, but you know, I don't, again, I don't have a secret path for you <laughs> other than to say, uh, we just need to have proper consultation, have the right experts involved, make sure that all stakeholders have a say uh, because we're dealing with, you know, when we're talking about online harassment, well, we can't really solve this problem without the big tech firms. Yeah. getting involved and we don't want to be heavy-handed there either so um it, it's it's tricky interesting territory that's for sure and in some ways and to close where we started but this question of transparency going down that road of censorship and saying not this content not that content can be really okay. problematic but when what the eu is doing around algorithmic accountability in relation to a risk assessment approach basically a more systemic risk assessment and then an audit function to it, that strikes me as, you know, the big tech companies will then have to assess their own algorithms and practices in terms of inputs and outputs. And are there things happening on our platforms that are problematic? Can we mitigate the risks by taking actions A, B, C? And then there would be, and civil society would have an opportunity to audit it and governments would have an opportunity to audit both the risk assessment, but the mitigation activities, that more systemic and an imposition of transparency on what is happening on the platforms strikes me as a much better first step than trying to whack them all certain content. But I yeah, agree. I think transparency gets us not everywhere, but but uh, certainly a long way there. And empowering third parties like your, like your own, actually, you've been uh, you know Citizens Lab has been a really good example of how third parties can deliver a really serious amount of transparency, and then help to ensure governments act as a result of that transparency. Yeah, we all have roles to play. And, you know, mine is as an academic. We're an academic institution. And I, I took seriously when I was hired my responsibilities to speak truth to power, to do very careful evidence-based research, no matter where it leads and who it offends. MPs have a role. Uh, you know, civil society has a role. And, and uh, it's often difficult, especially in the world we live in, which seems more and more compressed every day to get everybody on the same page. But uh, yeah, it makes, makes the challenge fun. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the work you yeah. do a great deal. And uh, I will at Likewise. some point need to bring my phone to you and you can tell me if I've been hacked. We could do that. We'd have to get you under a research ethics protocol. We don't just do that <laughs> willy-nilly. And it might be tricky because <laughs> there should be somebody looking out for you as an MP, not us. Yes, we do have an incredibly adept parliamentary protective service that, that does keep yeah. us safe and, and, okay. and monitors all of these things. It did worry me when I saw 
the use of Stingray technology, for example, but also your reports around the use of Pegasus. And obviously Pegasus isn't the only company in this space. And when I saw the no click potential for yeah. hacking, because usually I think, okay, I'm pretty adept at this. I was in Washington not so long ago and, and they do, an, I think maybe an even better job. They, they have these red team, blue team, you know, they'll hack yeah. on, a, on a test basis offices in Congress and just to make sure that they're shoring up all vulnerabilities and they're, and they're maintaining vigilance. I consider myself growing up with the internet to a great degree. I yeah. barely aware of how, of how to be hacked and how to avoid being hacked and not to yeah. click on that, not to go there. But when I saw the no click, I was like, well, not much you can do. I'm I'm done. <laughs> well, I don't I, I don't want to scare you unnecessarily, but if you think that's bad, just spend some time looking at SS7, which oh, is the vulnerability in the cell networks, which um, is now marketed by companies that are companion companies to NSO Group. I'll send you some links on that. For oh, you. great, great. Keep you up at night. <laughs> well, and then and then uh, we don't have time to go down this particular rabbit hole, but we just concluded a study not so long ago at the industry committee in quantum technologies. And uh, yeah. hearing from experts in that space who basically said, well, all of your communication that is encrypted today, if someone has that encrypted communication and you, all of the messages that you're sending today will eventually be hacked and there's nothing you can do about it. And so just know that in your forward thinking communications and <laughs> well, great. <laughs> yeah, from, from this point on, I will take that into account. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And anyway, I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you do. And um, yeah. I will continue to follow Citizen Labs work. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Nathaniel. Yeah, take, take care. Have a good one. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. As always, leave a positive review if you like what we're doing, as it really does help to grow our audience. We have coming episodes with climate expert Sarah Birch, NDP MP Taylor Backrack about his bill to lower the voting age to 16, and former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne. If you have suggestions for guests or topics, do be in touch at info at beyn8.ca. And otherwise, until next time.